excited to hear about what God's doing. So uh, we're turning now to God's Word. It is in Matthew 27. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can just follow along in the bulletin. The passage we're going to be studying together is printed for you in the bulletin. And uh, we're going to start Matthew 27, verse 32. Hear the Word of the Lord. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your holy word. And you've set this time aside for us to give our minds and our hearts to your word. So instruct us, teach us, send your Holy Spirit um, to help us to understand these words that you've given to us. Apply them into our life and into our culture. And so uh, we uh, give ourselves to you and to your word in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So we are in our 10th sermon uh, since Christmas, from Christmas all the way up to Good Friday and Easter, we are every week looking, answering the question, what is the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross? And so far, we're in our 10th answer to that question. It means there's many layers to, to, the, to answering that question, what is the meaning of the cross? There's tremendous amount of meaning and complexity to it. And this week, we are talking about how Jesus' death was an event in history. And that's actually an important part of the significance of the cross, that the main message that we have as Christians to tell the world is not something for us to do. It's not advice about how to live a good life or be a spiritual person. That's not our main message. The main message is not something that we do. Our main message is something that God has done in history, something that God has done. In fact, that's something that's... It's really important, not just about Jesus' death on the cross. It's important about the Bible as a whole. You know, so if any of you, for example, have decided, you know, I'm going to read through the Bible from cover to cover. And if you expect to come to the Bible and say, you know, I'm going to find inspiring stories about how to be a good person and be a moral person, be a spiritual person. And you start reading through the Bible, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because it's just not that kind of book. And you read through and you find out that actually this Bible is a history book. It's about these nations in the world, and specifically this nation Israel, but the relationship of Israel to all the other nations in ancient history. And you're reading a history book. And actually, you know, I put on page three of your bulletin, if you turn to page three in your bulletin, I put a quote from Huston Smith. Huston, Huston Smith was one of the 
foremost scholars in comparative religion in the 21st century. And he has a book called The Religions of Man, which is read in many universities across the country. And in his chapter on Christianity, he opens his chapter on Christianity by saying this. Christianity is basically a historical religion. That is to say, it is founded not on abstract principles, but on concrete events, actual historical happenings. The most important of these is the life of a Jewish carpenter who, as has often been pointed out, was born in a stable, was executed as a criminal at age 33, never traveled more than 90 miles from his birthplace, owned nothing, attended no college, marshaled no army, and instead of producing books, did his only writing in the sand. Nevertheless, his birthday is kept across the world and his death day sets a gallows against almost every skyline. Who was he? Huston Smith says Christianity is a historical religion. And so this morning I want to explore the historicity of the events of the gospel by looking at this passage that we just read together from Matthew 27. And I want to explore the historicity by answering three simple questions for us this morning. This is what they are. First, what is the historical evidence for Jesus' death? What is the evidence that these things actually happened? Second, what is the historical reason for Jesus' death? So Jesus, for some reason, he was crucified. What historical events led up to that? And then the third thing is, what is the historical effect of Jesus' death? So it's this important event in history. How was history changed because of that event? So three things that we're going to uh, talk about from this passage. And the first question is this. What is the historical evidence for Jesus' death? How do we know that Jesus' death and resurrection is a part of history and it's not a myth or a legend that has kind of been passed down to us? Because, you know, scholars of ancient literature have noted that there are many stories in ancient mythology about a god that died and then arose again from the dead. So, for example, the myth of Osiris. Osiris was an Egyptian god. Tells about how Osiris was killed by his brother Set. And his brother Set cut up his body into a bunch of pieces and spread the pieces of the body throughout Egypt. But then um, Isis, who is Osiris' wife, came and gathered all the pieces together. And she had these magic powers. And she resurrected Osiris so that they could have a child together. And so, this, and so you know, many... Uh, uh, ancient scholars, especially in the last century, have said, you know, we hear this story about Jesus, who's God, who died and he rose again from the dead. They say, you know, that story's been told before. It's been told many times. There are many traditions that have the dying God who rises again. And Jesus is just another legend among the many pagan legends about dying and rising gods. And so is the gospel of Jesus, this gospel that we just read aloud, does it fall in that category. Should we think of it that way? It's not even close. I mean, for one, no one has the slightest idea when Osiris ever lived. Did Osiris, you know, is that, it, we don't know a time or a place when Osiris lived. It's just kind of in the dark, ancient history of mythology. And uh, this is not the case with Jesus' death on the cross. We know exactly where Jesus died on the cross. You go visit it today. You can go to Jerusalem. You go have a tour today of where Jesus died. We know the place. We know that it happened in, on Passover in either 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. 
we have narrowed the day down to two possible candidates of the days of when he died. We know where it was, exactly when it happened. And scholars, both Christian and non-Christian scholars, agree overwhelmingly that Jesus was a man who grew up in Galilee and that was crucified in Jerusalem and Passover in the 30s under Pontius Pilate. Overwhelmingly, these are historical events. And how do we know that? What's the evidence for that? Well, the evidence is that we have the record of eyewitness testimony from the events. We have the eyewitness testimony of multiple witnesses, and the events of the gospel happened in public. They were not in secret. They were not in the dark past of mythology. They happened in actually recent recorded history of the Roman Empire. We know quite a lot about the Roman Empire during this time. And you can see the importance of eyewitnesses in the Gospels whenever you see a person's name mentioned. And you can see in verse 32 of this passage, the name that is mentioned, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon, by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And actually, if you go to the Gospel of Mark, Mark even gives more details about Simon. This is what he says in Mark 10, 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And so we hear about Simon, and Simon's got these two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And you might be reading this, and you just, well, who are these names? Why are these names even in here? I just breeze right over those names. Don't breeze over the names. Because um, if you have ever heard, uh, because why are Matthew and Mark naming this man and his children who carried the cross? This is a literary device that was used in the ancient world to say, these people are still alive. And if you want to hear the eyewitness testimony, you can track down Simon. And, he's, and Mark, when he's writing to his audience, he says, he mu they must know who Alexander and Rufus are. And he says, you know Alexander and Rufus, their father was there. Go ask them about this. And, um, you know, if you've ever heard anyone say that the Gospels basically came down to us as oral tradition. And it's kind of like telephone, you know, when you play the telephone game and one person tells the next person and it changes a little bit. And then they tell someone else it changes a little bit. And they say, you know, that's basically what happened with the Gospels. From one generation to the next, they were passing down an oral tradition about the stories of Jesus in each community would take that story and kind of adapt it to fit their needs until, you know, finally we get the, the Gospels that we have in the Bible. That's exactly the opposite of what happened. They are putting the names of people into the Gospel because it was written in the same generation that it happened, the same generation of the eyewitnesses. And these documents were written in public communities that could hold the writers to account. And so, you know, I just, uh, I watched a film recently that kind of really alerted me to the, the power of eyewitness testimony in communities. And uh, Micah Lasley told me about this video. You can look it up online. It's called Godspeed. It's a documentary about an American pastor who goes to Scotland and he takes a Church of Scotland parish in a little village in northern Scotland. And it's all about how he's, you know, this fast-paced 
uh, American pastor who wants to do all this stuff and all the, you know, Scott, people in Scotland are like, all right, you need to chill out. You need to learn to slow down, be parish minister. And so the whole thing is about how he learns to walk through his parish. And you go and walk and knock on everyone's door in, in this village. And he says, you know, he's got his collar on. He say, hey, I'm the local minister, you know, I'd like to meet you. And he tells this story about he knocks on this one door and meets this guy named Alan who opens the door. And he's this big Scottish man with this long red hair and big red beard. And he welcomes them in, and they, you know, have a, a dram of scotch together. And they get talking, and at the end, he invites Alan. He says, you know, do you have any interest in reading the Bible together at all? And Alan says, well, I don't have a lot of interest in that. And he says, well, I have some other men who are not interested in it either. Maybe we could all read it together. And uh, so Alan says, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll read it with you. And so they're in the middle of this Bible study, and the pastor's telling him these theology about, uh, uh, from the gospel. And then uh, Alan says, show me a map. And the pastor says, show you a map. All right, you know, there's actually some maps in the back of the Bible. So they go to the back of the Bible, there's maps are, and he looks at the scale on the map. And he realizes that the scale of the villages, of where all the stories in the gospel happen, it's about the scale of the villages that are in northern Scotland where he lives. And so, you know, the distance from, you know, Capernaum to the Sea of Galilee was about the distance from Pit Lockery to, to Dunkeld. And so he realized these are villages and communities like the villages and communities I live in. And this is what Alan says. The law at the time was if you speak, and you're speaking, you know, he has a Scottish accent. I can't do the Scottish accent, so I, I thought about trying. The law at the time was if you speak and you're speaking, you know, lies, then you will be punished by being stoned to death. If he was coming out with bold statements about raising people from the dead, making the blind see, he had to have convinced communities that it was true, or else communities would hold him to account and he would have no credibility whatsoever. And so he says, the whole scale of things was crucial to my understanding and to my convincing of, you know, the power of Jesus Christ. What Alan is saying, he says, these things happen in villages like mine. People saw these things, and in villages like this, we know when pe someone's lying. We know when something's not true. We snuff it out, and we end those lies. It does, you can't do something in, like that in the villages that I grew up in. And so when you ask, what is the historical evidence for Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, his whole life, the truth of the Gospels, we have eyewitness testimonies of people who are there and these records were put up to public scrutiny in the communities that they were in, and they named the names for us of the people who saw them. And that's, that eyewitness testimony has been passed down to us. Okay? This leads to another question, is when we read that eyewitness testimony, does it fit into what we know about the culture of the first century? Roman culture, Jewish culture of the first century. Do these stories make sense? If you read them against other documents from the first century, does it look like it, you know, this is what would have happened in Jerusalem in 30 or 33 AD? And this leads to our second question, which is this. What is the historical reason for, for Jesus' death? Okay, we see the evidence that this happened because we have eyewitness testimony. What is the historical reason for his death? Why was he crucified? And what's interesting about the story, you know, there's, there's both the Romans were involved in Jesus being put to death. Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor, put him to death. And it was the Jews who also brought 
Jesus to, you know, they brought these charges against Jesus to have him crucified. And so it's these two cultures that are actually really different. They were often hostile towards one another, the Romans and the Jews. And all of a sudden they come together in this one act of putting Jesus to death. Why did they do it? Okay, well, the first answer is that the Romans killed Jesus because he was a king. And you see that here, verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, as we've mentioned, one of the reasons that the main people that the Romans crucified were rebel leaders who had started a revolt against the Romans and you know, upset the peace in the Roman Empire. And so one of the reasons they would crucify them is people would walk on the highways and they'd see this man crucified and they'd put a sign you know, either hanging around his neck or they'd put it over his head and say, this guy started a revolt and if you want to start a revolt against the Romans, this is going to be you hanging on that cross. And so here the charge that Jesus was claiming to be a king is why he is being crucified. This is perfectly consistent with what the Roman, how the Romans acted. But when we read about the trial, we know that Pilate did not think that Jesus was a threat. He was like, this guy's not starting an army. He's not killing anyone. He's not attacking Roman soldiers. This guy, there's no reason that he should be crucified. And he did not want to help out the Jews. We know that about Pontius Pilate from other documents. He had no reason why he would have wanted to, to do a favor to the Jews. But then in John chapter 19, the Jews said this. From then, on Pilate, from then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate was afraid of letting a, a king go loose in the Roman Empire. And what happens if Caesar hears about this? So it's completely politically motivated. He doesn't want to get in trouble with Caesar. Fine, have him crucified. Historically, from what we know about Pontius Pilate, this sequence of events makes perfect sense. Pilate was a man of small character, and everything he did was politically motivated. He didn't want to cooperate the, with the Jews, but he also he was not a man of justice. And so we see that the reason that the Roman emperor, first of all, the reason the Romans had him killed is this is what they did with people who would be kings who started revolts against the Roman Empire. But second, the Jewish leadership killed Jesus because he spoke against the temple. Very different reason why they wanted Jesus killed, because he spoke against the temple. Look at verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you would destroy the temple, and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. And you hear the emphasis on the temple, and you know, the issue with the temple was in Jerusalem, the temple was this symbol of national pride for the Jewish people in the first century. You know, they're living under the oppression of the Romans, and they had this great temple that said, God lives with us. We are God's special chosen people, and he dwells with us. And it gave them this sense of superiority all over, all over the, uh, the other nations, a sense of entitlement. And they held on to this symbol. And so when Jesus comes to the temple, you remember what he does when he comes to the temple. What does he do? 
He comes and he starts throwing over all the tables and, you know, disrupting everything in the temple. He starts prophesying that God is going to destroy the temple within a generation. And, and he's speaking all these words against their national symbol. And he says, you know, the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. All the nations of the world were supposed to come into this great courtyard and hear teaching about who God is and learn to pray to God and have a relationship with God. And instead, they've made it a place for recruiting rebels to start an army against the Romans. You've totally transformed the purpose of this temple. And they saw that Jesus was disrupting their national unity and identity. And so the Jews, Jews saw Jesus leading the people astray, astray and breaking the unity of the people of God. And so they believed that he had to die. Now, what we see about both of these historical reasons for Jesus, the reason I tell you this, um, I, I, is that they, are, they fit perfectly into what we know from other sources about the Romans and the Jews of the first century. The historical plausibility of these records is remarkably high. These are not the words of a fairy tale. These are not the words of a legend. These are not the words of a myth. These are the words of the real history that we know from other sources. It makes sense in the first century. And so we've seen that there's historical evidence for Jesus' death, the eyewitnesses that were held up to public scrutiny, the historical reasons for his death, both in the Romans and the Jews, different reasons. And um, both of these point us to understand that Jesus' death is a defining moment in history. And so this leads to the third question that I want to answer is what was the historical effect of Jesus' death? And, you know, one of the biggest arguments in favor of the historicity of the, of the Gospels is the emergence of the movement of the church in the first century, which was largely a movement of Jews for the first century. It was, it was Jews who, who became followers of Jesus. And you can see how, in this passage, how Jesus on the cross made no sense to the people who were watching it. Verse 41 says... So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him. The leaders of the Jews had no sense of Jesus on the cross. It made no sense to them. And so then to have a whole movement of Jews and the center of the movement is Jesus' death on the cross, it doesn't make sense. And so I want to highlight three reasons why the formation of the church makes no sense unless the events of the gospel actually happened. Okay? First reason it makes no sense is because no one in the first century believed in a bodily resurrection. You know, it's very common for modern people to say, you know, we understand back 2,000 years ago before they had science, they thought that dead people came back to life. You know, we know now that dead people don't go back to life, and we can't believe in that now. But to say that people in the first century believed in dead people coming back to life is just simply not true. You know, the Greeks believed that our bodies were a prison, that your soul is trying to get away from when you die. And so to say that the Greeks believed in bodies coming from the dead, they never would have dreamed that. You don't want a body coming back to life. We're trying to get rid of the body so that we can set, be set free from it. But also, the Jews did not believe in a bodily resurrection. And you can see here, verse 42, they say to Jesus on the cross, he saved others. He cannot save himself. There's absolutely no expectation of a resurrection in this passage. 
It's because the Jews believed that there was a, a resurrection of the righteous at the end of history, but the fact that one man in the middle of history, the Messiah, would be raised from the dead, and then everyone else, the resurrection was divided into two events, one in the middle of history and one at the end of history, there is no evidence in any writings of Judaism that anyone ever thought that before the events of the gospel. No one even came up with that. It was not a thought. And so... Uh, the thought that a bunch of Jews would have spontaneously invented this has huge historical problems. The second problem is that no one in the first century believed in a crucified king or messiah. You see that verse 42, second half of verse 42. It says, he is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. No Jew in the first century could have ever dreamed that their Messiah, who's supposed to liberate them from the Romans, would be hanging on a cross. No one ever could have even invented that or, or, or thought of that. They're supposed, he's supposed to be liberating us uh, from the Romans. And uh, it, for us to think that some Jews would have said, you know, yeah, Jesus died, but Jesus is alive in my heart. And the church was a movement of people who believed that Jesus was still alive in their hearts, is simply to not understand the culture of the first century. No one would have thought that way. They did not think of messiahs that way. They thought of messiahs as kings who came to, to, to free them from the Romans. And so it's impossible to think of a whole movement of Jews spontaneously believing that and giving their life to an idea that no one had before then. And then the third thing is also that no one believed God could become a man. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. That Jesus was God's own son become a man, that God had become a human, again, is something that no one had written, that no Jew would ever dream of saying could happen. And so you have these three radical beliefs that spontaneously emerge in this movement in the middle of the first century that no one had even had a speck of inkling towards uh, before this point tells us that the most reasonable historical explanation for the movement of the church is that these things happened. The cross and resurrection are the turning point of human history. The cross is the great dramatic center of the great story we are all living in and that we are all characters in. And the evidence is there. The evidence has been preserved for us. The reasons are there. They fit in historically with what we know about the Romans and the Jews of the first century. But the effects of Jesus' death continue to reach us to this day. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you. You have not just given us abstract ideas about being spiritual and moral, you, but you have stepped into the messy history of humanity. You've become a part of our history. You've become a part of our world and the nations. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us a confidence that the words we read in the scriptures are true and record to us your great deeds that tell us of your great love. Deepen our confidence, we pray, in Jesus' name.